In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I will never forget my first ever Old Testament assignment in seminary. We were all asked to write an essay about the Song of Moses, Exodus chapter 15, the song of liberation that we sing each year at the Easter Vigil. The Israelites have escaped slavery in Egypt. The waters have opened to them and have swallowed their enemies, and it is by this song that they party. After we had handed in our papers and our professor had read them, he commented upon what we had said. He said that many of us had come up with things that he had never even thought of. He praised the originality of much of our work. And then he added, like a little aside, I'm interested that every single one of you missed the last line of the poem, the one that I think may be the most important. That line is, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The operative part is the verb, reign. This is a poem about freedom, yes, but in this free life, God is the king. I spent much of the rest of my time in seminary learning why it was that all of us did leave it out. Americans are pretty ambivalent about reigns. We don't like the word king. Lord isn't much better. With the passage of time in our so-called equal society, most of us have come to assume that freedom is somehow synonymous with getting my own way. And to call God a king implies that my freedom is accountable to someone else. Our ancestors founded this entire nation to escape kings. Thus, the phrase kingdom of God isn't going to be very popular in a world where children look me in the face and say, you're not the boss of me. So we try to stay away from that stuff in seminary, talking about the reign of God rather than the kingdom and very reluctant to call God Lord. We'd much rather have Joan Osborne's vision of God as a stranger on the bus and fully one of us. Interestingly, we're not the first group to be uncomfortable with this idea. Significantly, one of the few places where Jesus broke his silence before Pilate and before us was to say, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, most of us, knowing nothing but this world, don't really know what to do with the phrase, my kingdom is not in this world. It seems like pie in the sky, a 
And most of us, if we're being perfectly honest, aren't really willing to bet on something that vague as a kingdom that is not of this earth. It feels safer since we are on earth to be in charge. And at least if I get my own way, I know that at least for me, something is going right. If we had had the luxury of being on retreat together, if we had spent this entire 50-day period of the Paschal season in joint meditation as to what had really happened on Easter and what Jesus' resurrection means for us living our lives here, right now, today, I might be able to convince you that the whole of the season is about learning to see how God is the king and why this kingship is essential to our freedom. Now, of course, I can say it. I just did. But I'm not sure that you have experienced it. And if you haven't, how do you know that when I say that, I'm not just making one more false promise? There are a lot of traveling preachers who fly through churches making false promises. Still, I'm an idealist. I'm going to try anyway. I'll say this. God's kingship is essential to our freedom because one of the things that we are most enslaved to, whether we get our way or not, is the fear of death. And only God is stronger than death. Imagine for just a moment what life would feel like if you didn't ever have to be scared of dying again. Now, the idea that I am that there's nothing to be afraid of, that death like life is impermanent, this very Christian idea certainly does not jibe with what the world very convincingly believes. For in the world death is ultimate and terrifying. That was true in Jesus' day. It is also true in our day. So we go back to seminary. Once more, we were taught, because the Episcopal Church is a worldly church, and at seminary they took this world really, really seriously. Whether we liked it or not, the world was the way things are. The reign of God, remember we're not talking about a kingdom, the reign of God is the way things ought to be. Nice, isn't it? But there's a real problem with that because it implies that the kingdom of God is something that hasn't happened yet. It's something that we'll get to if we work hard and move into the future and some vague future, remember we might die before this happens, so that this idea does nothing to assuage our fear. Anyway, this real world feels very real, even if Jesus did come along to suggest and to teach that it's a great deal less real than we might think. The season of Easter challenges this idea that I received in seminary that God's kingdom is yet to come. When the tomb opens and Jesus comes out alive, Jesus reveals that the kingdom has been in our midst all along. It's we 
who were blind when it came to seeing it. So think of what Jesus did during his ministry. He helped the blind to see truly. He helped the deaf to hear the true story. He helped those who were so crippled by life in this world and others' expectations that they couldn't even live anymore. And in all of this, because Jesus is ultimately obedient to God, comes the idea that I will find freedom and I will find life if I, too, am obedient to God. That if I can see the world through God's eyes, I can get through whatever the world has to throw at me. And the world threw the very worst that it could possibly throw at Jesus. God came to earth, he was arrested, he was tortured, he was brutally killed, but that didn't end him. And in that way, Jesus' own experience becomes the answer to, what if it's I who get caught in the tsunami? What if it's I who get the really, really bad thing? The crucifixion acknowledges that it's a bad thing, but the resurrection says it's not the ultimate thing. And finally, the ascension, which we celebrated last Thursday, which is one of the most overlooked major feasts in the church, one of the reasons that Jesus was taken up to heaven bodily in front of his disciples was to say, yes, heaven is real, and I'm here to prove it. So, what this all is about is that whatever it is that we see, that the greatest treasure is not knowledge or achievement, but life itself. In living and dying, life feeds us and cares for us. In living and dying, life weaves the tapestry of our generations, spins the beautiful tales and memories of our species, of which we too are an integral part. Living and dying represents a world that always grows, always changes, always presents us with new challenges and new adventures, but always offers us, in whatever those adventures may be, the assurance that God is with us and that God will save us. And God knows better than anybody that striking out into the unknown is terrifying. That's why he went to all the trouble to send us his only begotten son. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, says Jesus in today's gospel. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. In this really dense passage, Jesus is suggesting that to be fully human is also to be fully divine. That glory comes in living and dying and living again. That we are meant to mirror God in the world. That the story is not going to end with us, but that we will be around to find out what does happen. We are called to be the agents of reconciliation, of building community, no matter what the world may say to the contrary. 
Okay, that being said, yes, there is a difficulty. To stand in the light of God, which is a pretty intense light, is also to risk being blinded by it. It is very easy, and I speak from bitter experience, to mistake my own power for God's power, especially if I am doing what I am doing because I love God. It is very, very easy to confuse my own desires, what the world would look like if Carol Luther got her way, right? With what God wants for everybody else. And the better I am at being me, the more influence I have, the harder it often is for God to work through me. And this is where that word that none of us like, humility, comes in. Humility is not about being humiliated. Humility is the same root as humus, which is that wonderful soil that grows things, the earth that swallowed Jesus and then brought him back to life. And so the whole secret, or part of the secret, is to get to heaven, I need to accept my earthiness. I need to give up my magnificence. I need to be wonderfully ordinary so that God can fill me up with what is perfectly extraordinary. And the story of death, resurrection, and ascension that forms our Easter experience is the practice. It tells us how we are to go from being ordinary to being extraordinary. All the readings that we heard this morning on this, the last Sunday of Easter, are here to celebrate the power of God. And perhaps the most vivid of the stories is the first one, which is part of the ongoing saga of Paul of Tarsus, a man who is very powerful and is learning to give up his human power to become the vessel of the power of God which is to say he doesn't always do it right. And for us as readers and hearers, we need to not idolatrize him. He's not God. But we also need to be not too critical of him because like him, we are works in progress. So at the beginning of today's reading, Paul, a man of God, gives vent to his irritation. A slave girl has been following him around. She has a spirit that says, listen to these guys. They can save you. They are servants of the Most High God. And he just finds her a pain. So he summons up all of his God-given power. And in the name of Jesus, he calls that spirit out of her. Not giving a second thought to what happens to a little slave girl in Rome when her spiritual power is removed. Now we know, if she can't make money for her masters telling fortunes, she can make ma money for them in another way. And so probably that poor girl, after she loses the spirit, is dragged down to the marketplace. God wants Paul to know that. So God drags Paul down to the marketplace too, where in an amazing story, he's arrested for upsetting an entire city. I mean, this is one slave girl. This is not an entire city. But God wants to teach Paul a lesson. And so Paul and Silas get beat up, just like Jesus was, and thrown into the inner darkness in chains. This is really rather like the image of Christ being buried 
uh, going down to the dead and rising again. And when Paul is down there in the inner darkness, he remembers who it really is he's working for. And so he and Silas pray. They sing hymns, and the prisoners listen to them. And when the earthquake comes, it's just the nicest earthquake because it doesn't, you know, crash the roof on everybody's head or cause a disaster. It just unlooses their chains and breaks the foundation so they can all get out. Would that all earthquakes were this nice. And Paul knows what to do this time. He doesn't just walk off. He stays with the consequences of what has happened, keeps the prisoners together, and keeps the jailer from having to kill himself, which is actually what he would have had to have done if his prisoners had escaped. This is the ministry of presence. It is the ministry of telling the story of God and being the story of God and staying with the people that God has given to you to be with. The first, the ministry of action. Paul, thinking he knew what to do, had unintended consequences. The second part of the story, where Paul waits on God to give him the answer, leads to salvation and people, people's eyes being opened to the truth. Now, I bring this all up on the last Sunday of Easter because if we live, live in the world which we do, we are living at a time where the news is not being very good. The last time I was here, we said prayers for at least four of our young people who were stranded on another continent because an erupting volcano grounded all air travel. That volcano, by the way, is erupting again and may ground it all on Monday morning, or even as we speak. But added to that disaster is now the terrible oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, and the more we learn about it, the more tragic it becomes. And it does feel in these times that we have kind of reached the end of our rope and what are we to do. And this is where the Easter story sheds a very important light on where we are. Because the Easter story says, yes, these things are going to happen. And yes, these things may indeed be the consequences of human actions. Don't think that we were the, are the first to have done these terrible things. The Assyrians and the ancient Greeks deforested most of the Near East with their own bare hands and created a great disaster. So we're not the first by any means. But what God is saying in the Paschal Mysteries is that it is not human ingenuity necessarily that is going to get us out. It is having the courage not to do what we want to do and hold on for dear life to all that we've got. It is taking the chance to let it go, to ourselves become the earth, and let God fill us with the answer that can truly save us. Don't be afraid, says Jesus during this whole season of Easter. God is really here. God is real. God is love. Love is what runs the universe. Trust this story that has been going on for a long time and of which you are a part. 
Reality is always bigger and more mysterious and more wonderful than anything we can dream. The Israelites learned this when the Red Sea opened and made it possible for them to find freedom. That story is still going on. On Easter, the earth herself opened and gave us a living Christ. That story, too, is going on. We're in it. Even all this stuff that we read in the paper is but a new adventure if we can just be like our ancestors and have the courage and the hope to walk into the wilderness with God. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at oursaviourmv.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.